Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is Lindsay Buckingham giving you the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Story Behind the Song, the Consequence Podcast Network series where we interview the iconic artists behind the most iconic songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chadi, and each month I dive deep into conversations with your favorite musicians of all time to get insights into the creative journeys behind their most popular and lasting songs. I also ask each musician about one of their personal favorite deep cuts from their own catalog. In the process, these living legends reveal frequently surprising, never-before-discussed details about these songs and their creative journeys, as well as candid reflections about their personal triumphs and challenges. This time around, I spoke with the great Lindsay Buckingham, resident auteur and iconoclast guitarist and lead male vocalist for Fleetwood Mac, and continuing solo artist, songwriter, and producer. Lindsay just released his latest self-titled solo record earlier this month, his seventh and his first in 10 years. We discussed Buckingham's surrealistic Fleetwood Mac masterpiece, Tusk, the first single from the band's follow-up to Rumors, as well as his Fleetwood Mac-inspired song, On the Wrong Side. So strap in as Lindsay Buckingham gives us the story behind the song. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And good to see you. So where are you calling in from? Well, I'm at home uh, in good old Los Angeles (laughs) on the (laughs) west side. And... um, uh, you know, and uh, we'll be departing for rehearsal in about an hour and a half. And we've we've been rehearsing for about uh, six weeks, and we got one more week uh, next week, and then we hit the road. Outstanding. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that because the road is getting ever more complex yet again. Yeah. Oh, yes. So it's it's kind of crazy times, but mm-hmm. today we're going to be talking about two of your songs, like I said. 
And right. one of which is my personal favorite songs of yours, and it was a massive hit itself, Tusk, uh, from the album of the same name, and then the follow-up to Rumors. And then one of your forthcoming songs from your forthcoming self-titled album, Lindsey Buckingham, which is hitting the store, coming out on all services September 17th. Mm -hmm. And the name of that song is On the Wrong Side, which harkens back to some of those earlier days as well. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. But but first I wanted to ask you, Lindsay, um, in these crazy past several years and uh, just about your your own personal health, because you had a scare, a, a significant scare a couple of years back. And tell us, tell me about that a little bit and just how you're feeling. Well, you know, um, I had uh, gone in to uh, a doctor's office, ironically, to have uh, an elective procedure. And um, when I began to sort of awaken from the anesthesia from that, my, my chest was hurting. And I obviously alerted people around me to that. And uh, at uh, some point, you know, fairly quickly, obviously, they uh, decided that the prudent thing to do was to go to the hospital. So uh, that happened. And uh, the next thing I actually remember is waking up and my wife saying, well, you just had a bypass. And so I had had a, a, a heart attack and um, it was kind of, uh, in a way, a gift that I was in this environment that was so nurturing and so connected to what needed to be done anyway. And, uh, and really, uh, the bypass took care of some blockage that I'd had. And um, aside from the recovery from that, which obviously took a while, it's a big deal. Uh, I, I've been feeling great. And, um, you know, the one thing that did happen during that uh, bypass procedure was they had uh, apparently a bit aggressively put uh, a breathing tube down my throat, which had uh, temporarily damaged my vocal cords. And uh, there was a period of a few months where I didn't know if I was going to get my voice back. And that was a little scary. But, you know, it was sort of part and parcel with the whole recovery process and everything kind of came back. And, um, and you know, of course, then COVID hit. And uh, so, I mean, this album is, is something we've had ready to go for like about three years now. And uh, one thing after another kept kind of uh, kicking it down the road. So we're happy to finally get it together. Well, we're happy to see you. you well, look- thank you. You look great and you sound great. So is there any damage at all to your vocal cords at this point? Uh, not that I would, not that I can really say. I mean, a couple of songs in the set, we've lowered the keys a half step. Yeah. But but that's something that that has happened over the years anyway. When I go back to the keys I was singing some of these songs in when I was 25, you know, I mean, it's just a part of getting older as well. So uh, I don't know if there's any real direct uh, connection between the breathing tube incident and and having to lower keys at the present. But all is good. You know, as they say, it's what you do with what you got. 
Well, like I said, you sound great. And I want to get into, before we get into the songs a little bit, um, you know, uh, I want to talk not about a lot of the ground that's already been well-traveled, because obviously your story is legend and what you built in terms of your career, uh, both with the band, but also as a solo artist for, this is going to be your seventh solo album, from what I understand. So Mm -hmm. I want to just first get uh, just a little bit from your your words about your journey as a young lad and how you got into music in the first place. Well, you know, I was very lucky to start extremely young. I mean, even even before I started to play guitar, I was I was enamored with music that was in our household, which, you know, went between the time of my being like two or three and being six. It was what what your parents had had, you know. And then one day, my older brother uh, said, hey, there's this new singer, Elvis Presley. (laughs) And he started bringing home rock and roll. And of course, as with many people who have, you know, uh, been around, uh, that long, it, it, it was a revelation to a six-year-old. Um, rock and roll was a, a life-changing uh, phenomenon for all of us. And um, I took it upon myself to get a chord book. And I started off on a ukulele and eventually kind of shifted over to a three-quarter size uh, six-string guitar. But I, I just taught myself how to play. And um, I've never taken a lesson. Uh, I don't know how to read music. It's all, you know, intuitive. It's all from the heart. It's all from the center out. And I, luckily for me, it's worked. I have no sense of what's right or what's wrong. And I think that served me pretty well. But you also have to say that I was one of those who was very lucky to be exposed firsthand to that first wave of rock and roll. Um, followed by uh, uh, a very substantial dose of folk music. And then, of course, the the second wave of rock and roll, which was the Beatles and all of that. And then to have lived through all of that, it's hard to tell your kids how meaningful that was and what what a sociological impact it had on the world, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I feel lucky to have been there to sort of witness that in real time and and. Uh, to be inspired by it. And I feel lucky that I was focused enough and, and motivated enough to want to teach myself guitar at such a young age. And when did you first look, really know that this is the career that you wanted to pursue? Well, it's funny. I, you know, because I lived a kind of a, uh, a, a fairly straight ahead um mainstream kind of life in my family and and pretty much followed through on what was expected of me when I was growing up. I was an athlete. I was a swimmer and a water polo player and uh, had all the same close friends from kindergarten through the end of high school. And uh, the guitar and, and the music was something that was you know, my personal religion. And I, I, it's not that I was hiding it. Everyone knew that I played, but I wasn't seeing myself particularly in the role of of that, nor was I goal oriented to, to try to 
think of myself as, as, as forging a path to that end, you know, at least not until I was uh, in my late teens. Um, and um, so I, I was not in a band in high school. Uh, I didn't really play lead guitar. Um, and I, by a fluke, I got in a band uh, about the time I was graduating from high school. And over the summer, we kind of played around. And then in the fall, we, uh, we needed a singer, a girl singer we thought we would find. And of course, we were all at a junior college up in San Mateo, not far from where I grew up. And Stevie was also at that college. She was a year older. And we asked her to join our band, and she did. And so I was in a band playing bass, not playing guitar, for about four years. You know, yeah. the, the keyboardist was writing the songs, and we had a, a very good local following. But when it came time to try to get a deal in Los Angeles, there was no interest in us. But there was interest in Stevie and myself at that point from people in Los Angeles. And I think that was the first time. I mean, again, I was probably about 20. Uh, that was the first time that it ever occurred to me that I might want to make this a career. You know, it, it was not a motivation I had early on. And it was really Stevie who got us down to L.A. She said, well, you know, once, once we'd sort of uh, created a, a, a body of material that represented what we wanted to do as a duet, um, she said, well, I think we need to move to L.A. just to you know, be where the action is. And that's probably something I wouldn't have done on my own because I was uh, someone who lived in the same house his whole life and had, as I say, had the same friends. And I was rooted in, in the Bay Area, and she, whereas she had moved around a lot. But, you know, it, it even, even then, even when I sort of was intrigued by the idea of pursuing a career, I wasn't necessarily motivated to make the hard choices in the way she was, you know? So it yeah. took both of us to, to really get there. Well, so what do you think that if you didn't make it down to Los Angeles and all, all the serendipity that led to your ultimate breakout success and what you've been doing for your career, what do you think you would have been doing? What had you not become a musician? Well, I don't know. I mean, certainly there, there was a, a possibility we would have connected up in Northern California because the San Francisco scene was, was quite uh, potent at that time. And Bill yeah. Graham and the Fillmore and, and it wasn't like there wasn't a, a musical culture going on around San Francisco, but it was not really where the business side of things were, was generally based. And I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's really a crazy thing to think about i mean i i thought about being a commercial artist because i'm a pretty good artist uh yeah. but i never really gave it serious thought you know after high school one of the things that did happen to me because i graduated high school in 1967 that was the summer of love you know up in san francisco i started to deprogram from all of those expectations that my family had had for me and i started to grow my hair out and I started to, uh, and I got in a band and, you know, eventually started smoking a little pot and, you know, things that the, not only the rest of my family didn't do, but most of my friends that I'd had since early childhood 
did not do either. They went on to become lawyers and doctors and businessmen. And, and I sort of slipped under the wire there and uh, escaped to a, a different, completely different subculture. Okay, just really quickly, because then I want to get into the song. But so how did your parents react to that when you slipped into that subculture? Well, I again, my parents were very, very supportive of everything I did and the choices that I made. Um, and, and I, you know, they allowed our band to rehearse every weeknight in our garage for ah. years. You know, well, there you um, go. They, 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 they knew we needed a place to be. And my mom especially wanted us to feel like we had a home. And I, I think it was my long suffering dad who came home from work every night and had to listen to this music. But um, so I think it threw them initially, but only only in a small way, because I think they had uh, faith that, you know, growing one's hair out was only slightly meaningful, you know, and they knew who I was as a person and that hopefully I was going to find my way and make good choices and, and hopefully maintain my integrity. And, you know, that some of that was the example they set for me. Yeah. Do you remember writing your first song? I can't say that I do, but I will tell you that I was a very late bloomer when it came to writing. I, you know, all the time that I played bass in, in the band that we were in with Stevie, I had never written a song. And uh, Stevie, who I had known in high school briefly because she transferred in as a senior to my high school when I was a junior and we had had some interaction, were aware that we both sang and played and she was writing songs back then. Uh, and, and I really didn't start writing again until it was sort of put upon me that I had to do it because, okay, well, if Stevie and I are going to be a, a, a duo and we're going to get a deal in LA, she's got songs. I guess I have to start writing songs. <laughs> and so it, it was just a, a moment where it was very deliberate. I, I guess I've got to figure this thing out. And luckily, I was already entrenched in a recording process. Um, I had been able to get an Ampex, uh, an old Ampex four track tape machine. And so I was already sort of making paintings, you know, and, and creating architecture through the music by playing all the stuff myself, sort of following Les Paul's lead and um and so that i think that helped me even back then in terms of sorting out the writing process and did you immediately feel comfortable singing in public well i, I had always sung in in the band uh -huh. and uh when i was in uh maybe the eighth grade and maybe a freshman in high school i had had uh, a couple of folk bands and yeah. had sung uh, then. So, yeah, no, that was never something that uh, was a challenge for me at all. Interesting. Well, I wanted to get a little bit of that background, which is fascinating. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get right into Tusk and the story behind the song Tusk with Lindsay. So stick around. We'll be right back. We're back with Lindsay Buckingham here. And now we're going to get into the story behind, as I said, one of my favorite um, songs of his and big hit, very significant hit from the album Tusk, which followed the Rumors album, of course. And this, this one is 
even in my research, as I look behind it and, you know, I've been following your music forever. Uh, but I, I still, as I listen to it, it, I'm, it's a marvel to me, just all the various layers behind it and how this came to you, how, how you first wrote it, the production of it, the hoots and hollers and crowd noises, how the band, you know, all of these elements. So let's just tell me the story about Tusk. Everything well, I mean, Tusk was, uh, um, the song Tusk was sort of the, the centerpiece of not only the music that was represented on the Tusk album, but it was also the centerpiece of, of a, a way of thinking that I had arrived at in a post-rumors environment. Now, you know, with rumors, we had had such incredible success in terms of album sales and, you know, beyond what anyone could have really predicted. And, at, and, there, and obviously there was the, the element of the kind of the musical soap opera that people were buying into as well that was about our personal lives and that was sort of unique but but where it began to get a little sketchy for me was on one level was that you know at some point the success of rumors began to detach from the music and began to become more about the success itself and you find yourself in this environment where um suddenly all of your inner impulses which have driven you are in danger of being superseded by external expectations. And that's not just what the fans want to hear, but it's even perhaps more importantly, what your label would like to see you do at that point, because there's a kind of a corporate formula. I think that if something works, run it into the ground uh, until there's nothing left and then move on. And that's maybe a good, a business formula, but it's not a great formula for aspiring to be an artist in the long term, because an artist must continue to find new things and continue to take risks and continue to work outside their comfort zone and continue to confound those external expectations uh, when necessary. So, you know, in, in the, the months preceding Tusk, I was really of a mindset to take a different direction. And the band was initially a bit skeptical, but got drawn in fairly quickly. I was working a lot at home uh, on a 24 track and, and painting those paintings and, and finding things, discovering things that I wouldn't have found if we'd started from point A in the, in the studio. Then I would bring the, the tapes in and we'd, augment my work with the rest of the band. And it became a far more experimental thing. And now Tusk, uh, as a song, I think just embodies the spirit of rebelling against those expectations in every way possible. Um, and so it started off as a just a riff. And then I added the other uh, chord progressions to it. And there was no sense of, of having to uh, tell a, a literal story about anything. 
there, uh, in a way, I almost wanted it to be alienating, which I think it was in some ways. I mean, I always made the joke that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall the first time all the people in the boardroom at Warner Brothers put the song on and were, what is this? Oh, you know? absolutely. absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and it just built on itself. I mean, the, 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 the drum track on that is, is not a performed drum track. It's about an eight bar drum loop. And back then, you know, you couldn't just do a digital drum loop. You had to do an analog drum loop, which meant you were holding 24 track tape, letting it run through the machine and having someone hold a, a you know, a, a reel on the other side of the room and have it just go around for about 10 minutes. And that was, you know, what everything was built on. And, um, and it was, it was a, a great, great exercise in spontaneity and in, in everyone participating and in everyone sort of uh, thinking very much out of the box, um, even to the point of getting the USC marching band on there, which I have to say was a brilliant idea that Mick had. And, uh, and it was certainly by, by, all accounts, that was the capper that, that really uh, sealed the deal on that track. And, and not only was it just a musical coup at the, in, in the context of how it served the song, but obviously it's become part of the legacy of USC now too. No question. As I was telling you before we started, I literally just 30 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago, dropped off my daughter. She's going off to USC and I've been to Welcome Week. I've been to all these things. They they took your song and it's trademark USC now. Like they they loop it over and over again. I'll tell you, Art Partner, who was the you know the the guy who uh, scored that and had been the uh, the leader of, of the marching band for years. I think he just retired this year. Uh, I mean. It, it, we couldn't have done it without him because he was he was passionate about it and he kept the passion going for all these years, you know. Yeah, pretty amazing. So, uh, so Mick had this idea for bringing them in, and it was was that just a serendipitous sort of thing where just he he thought of it out of the blue, and you were all being experimental at the time. Well, you know, uh, very much so. I mean, like I say, the band was a little bit skeptical of my wanting to make such a left turn, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the wake of the success we'd had with rumors. And I think there probably was in, in their minds initially a, a preconception that we would and perhaps should make something like rumors too, you know? And to me, that was kind of a, you know, the, the first step in painting yourself into a corner where you really start to forget who you are as an artist. And you see that happen with a lot of people where they perhaps certain artists be, start to become caricatures of themselves in a way, you know, because they're really more concerned with fulfilling those external expectations. And so, you know, I think the band would have gone in that direction without my having imposed something else, but because they so quickly got drawn into the the sense of a possibility that, that we were now engaged in with a new approach, they all uh, kind of 
circled the wagons and and decided to tap into that within themselves too and and no more, no one more than Mick you know because Mick and I are have always been soulmates in in many ways and it just took a little encouragement on my part to get him there and so obviously he came up with the goods uh in in that particular idea as in many other instances on Tusk so before I get into the lyrics a little bit to ask you about that and the abstract nature of the lyrics, um, there's, from the very beginning of that song, there's this undercurrent of crowd noise, at least that's kind of what it sounds like, a murmur. There's a murmur mm-hmm. and, the, and it builds, and, but there are hoots and hollers and there's a portion of the song, I've always wondered all these years, there's, it almost sounds like a loon, like there's a, there's a, <laughs> You know, do you know which piece I'm talking about? That Not exactly, but it's, yeah. it's kind of like a warble, a high pitch warble. And it sounds almost like a bird a little bit. But just how did it, because you produced as well. So mm-hmm. How did all of the, like, how do you think that way to bring all those little sounds in, which are not obvious at all? Well, uh, you know, I I can't say that I exactly remember the impetus for all of those things. I just think, you know, the the song itself was such a departure in terms of form, as you mentioned, in terms of lyrics being uh, a bit abstract, if you will, Um, in in terms of uh, just the the whole uh, construction of it, uh, that it just it led to us looking for uh, kind of surreal aspects to, to bring to the song. And, and I think because I think even at that point, we might've known we were going to call the album Tusk, even though it might have not been formalized as an idea yet. I think everyone sort of sensed that the song Tusk was going to be sort of the figurehead for the album Tusk. And I think we wanted to pack as much of that kind of confounding of expectations in as we possibly could, you know? And so it just, one thing led to another. Uh, I can't actually remember where we got the crowd noise or where we got some of those other sounds. Some of that could have come from the recording of the marching band because we actually did the marching band at Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. outside and mic them all up and had a remote truck. And then we were able to film it as well and make it a, a piece to, that we could show. And so um, I don't, I, you know, it, it was just a, an exercise in, in really pushing that envelope, you know, much in the way the Beatles did at certain points in there. Yeah. I think we just had that mindset, you know. How about the lyrics? It's, was that just something that flowed from you when you, as you were well, writing? Yeah, I think it was a, you know, it's interesting because I feel like my lyrics over time have gotten better and better because they have become less literal and perhaps more interpretable, more of a Rorschach for whoever is, is reading them or listening to them. Um you know, if you go back to rumors, all of those are very literal, you know, open, not really open to interpretation lyrics. I think Tusk was an, was an early example of me, um, again, probably consciously wanting to break away from that. Um, 
And so if I have to go back and analyze those lyrics, I, I'm not even sure what they're about at this (laughs) point, but, but I think probably it's just talking because you, it's referring to a person. Why don't you tell me if he's going to stay, you know, why don't you tell me what's going on? Why don't you tell me who's on the phone? It sounds like um, a kind of a, a personification of, oddly enough, again, all those external forces, the business, the people within the business who were looking at us as product and were looking at us as something to exploit and uh, which is their job. It's, there's no blame in that. Uh, it's just, you know, do you succumb to that? How do you look at that? Is it a little sinister perhaps at that point? Or is it, is it just, you know, the opportunity that you always wanted? I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword, obviously. You know, the success of rumors was, was defining for me. And, uh, you know, the album Tusk was a line in the sand that I drew that, really has defined me ever since in terms of the kind of choices that I continue to try to make in terms of upholding integrity and upholding uh, an aesthetic, uh, a creative aesthetic. And um, so I think there was a kind of a cynicism in terms of, as I say, personifying uh, the, all of those elements within the lyrics of Tusk. And so were you surprised because it was such a departure from rumors and the massive success of that album. Were you surprised at how successful Tusk, not only as the album, but Tusk the song was as the first release from that album and that it was embraced when it was so different? Um, Probably a little, (laughs) probably not as much as Warner Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, Yes. I mean, yes and no. I mean, we there were songs on there that were single worthy, you know, and and we did have a few singles from that album. Uh, at the same time, you know. It, it certainly did not sell 16 million albums or whatever rumors had sold at that point. Um I mean, it was a double album, first of all. So it was twice the price. And I think it sold like four or five mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. And the, the irony in that was that as drawn into the creative process as the rest of the band had had be- gotten, how they had become uh, enamored of the idea and the process of what we were doing during the making of the Tusk album, um, once it did not, approach rumors and and come on nothing could have i mean that was a a one-shot deal you know uh even michael jackson he's gonna have maybe one album that is just uh, for any number of reasons it becomes a phenomenon that that goes beyond the music um on a commercial level so i mean it would have been unrealistic to think that that was ever going to happen again anyway but because it it was more modest, um, although still, as you say, very successful. Uh, there was a kind of a backlash within the band 
maybe a year later and um and mick came to me and said well i don't i don't think we're gonna do that process again you know mm-hmm. where i go go home and i'm working on my songs and i bring them in he wanted to get back to something a little more conventional and that was the point where i realized if i was going to continue to um you know, explore the more esoteric side of my palette uh, and to keep pushing my own personal envelope as an artist that I would, that I was going to have to do it on solo albums. Uh, I see. I see. And then before we move on to the second song from your forthcoming album, Tusk itself, because as you were saying, there's this colloquy, this discussion you're having, who's on the phone, all of that, where it yeah. have various meanings. The word Tusk, what I'm not asking you to explain what it means because I'm sure it's not <laughs> literal and you're an abstract painter, but how did that enter your psyche tusk as this response to all of this that's in the song? Well, I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I know that Mick and I had a, a mutual love of, uh, certain musical things that were African in origin. Uh, Mick eventually went to Ghana and made an album there. Um, And I I think there was a a sense of uh, it it being a kind of a, a metaphor for just wildness. You know, we, we, quite early had the idea of having Peter Beard, who was a photographer and um, from the East Coast who had spent years over in, uh, in Africa, you know, trying to help save elephants and had interacted with, uh, you know, Karen Blixen over there. And, um, and so there, there was this sort of aura of, of wildness that, that we were sort of thinking and about anyway, just in terms of what we were doing musically. And I think it kind of came to light with the idea of wild animals and especially African wild animals, because we loved African music so much. And it, it's somehow Tusk just, it had a, a resonance to it that stuck, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of logic to it though. you know. <laughs> Listen, it worked, right? It was, it's wonderful. And yeah. And then the final thing about the Tusk album that you were speaking about animals. First of all, you have a very well-behaved dog that's sitting there uh, while we're speaking. (laughs) But on the cover, of course, of the Tusk album, you have the dog that's biting somebody's pant leg, which I always thought was interesting, which is certainly not literal when it comes to Tusk, but another fascinating little piece of painting on your part. Yes. And and that was actually... uh our engineer ken calais that was his dog scooter (laughs) and uh that's ken's leg in the shots because that was it was the irony of that was that it wasn't uh an unfriendly bite it was a game that he used to play by playing tug of war with with ken's pant leg and uh but but it just it it was a picture somebody had taken and we had it up on the wall and we thought well that's actually a pretty good analogy for something having to do with this album we're not sure what but you know somehow ties in 
Well, interesting. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, and then when we come back, we'll speak with Lindsay about his song On the Wrong Side from his album, forthcoming self-titled album, Lindsay Buckingham, coming out on September 17th. Okay, welcome back. We're speaking with Lindsay Buckingham on Story Behind the Song for Consequence. And the second song now, Lindsay, we're going to speak to, I, I ask my guests to always choose the second song. One that is that speaks to them, no rules, but uh, it's up to them to choose from their own discography, which recording, which song matters to them. And so you have chosen the song On the Wrong Side from your forthcoming album that's coming out September 17th. So tell us why you chose that song, what it means to you, and the journey behind that. Well, um, it was an interesting thing. When I began working on this album, I said to myself, well, I, I, I think I, you know, I want to make, for lack of a better term, I want to make a pop album. You know, not that there aren't a lot of pop elements to all my solo work, but I just wanted to sort of hearken back to something slightly, um, you know, more uh, familiar, perhaps, is a good word. And, um, you know, I think the, the last couple of tours with Fleetwood Mac had been meaningful on a certain level because, um, you know, over time, if you are in a band for that long, you're basically up there doing the body of work that exists. You're not reinventing the wheel necessarily in your shows, but the, the real meaning comes from the fact that we started to see maybe three generations of people coming to our shows. You know, you, you might've had people who were young when Stevie and I first joined the band, and then you might have their kids and then you might have their kids. And, and it started to dawn on me that, uh, we must have done something right in order to have our music be meaningful in, in a way that spans several generations. And, um, and I think it does take the equation of time to sort of be able to take stock of that, you know, properly. And so I, I came away from the last couple of tours feeling that. And, and it made me want to sort of uh, refer back to some of the elements that I had employed in Fleetwood Mac, um, embrace them a little bit more than I had in the past. And so um, that was a mindset going into uh, the recording of this album. And, and uh, On the Wrong Side, in particular, uh, is, is very much something where I was probably aware that, that you could sort of make a connect the dots back to go your own way. And um, that was not something, oh, there goes the dog. Um, <laughs> I was, it a wasn't well -behaved something. A well-behaved dog, by the way, very well -behaved. Yes, 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 he is, some of the time. Um, and I don't think it was something that I felt, um, 
was anything other than than sort of appropriate at, at that, this particular time in my creative life or in my personal life, you know? Uh, so I, I just wanted to write something which felt um, very accessible uh, as much of the new album is. And again, something which, because really a good deal of my solo work, I think you, you have to make this deal with yourself um, because there may be for every 10 Fleetwood Mac fans, right? Maybe one of those is going to be a fan of my solo work. And that's because you're getting far more esoteric, generally speaking. Um, and you're, again, maybe confounding whatever people's preconceptions are about you within the band Fleetwood Mac. And, and so you tend to lose people along the way. And that's a trade-off that you have to be willing to make. Uh, and I've always been happy to do that. I have always thought of it as, as being like a filmmaker, the difference between being a Steven Spielberg or being a Jim Jarmusch, you know, where you, uh, you're going to, you're not really doing it for the commercial outcome. You're doing it for the art and for the process that you go through to get there and for the ability to care about and do things on your own terms, you know? And so, uh, but I, I felt that, you know, on the wrong side and many of the songs on, on the new album uh, were, were that, that, that resonance with, with things Fleetwood Mac was uh, was just timely, and you know, in, in a way, probably a few more of those people who would normally be Fleetwood Mac fans will probably gravitate to this album because of that. Yeah. Well, when I first heard it, it definitely had those um, that sense to me for sure, mm -hmm. and. It, and it's, it's a wonderful song. Um, Thank you. I'm very curious to hear the rest of the album, um, but it's a wonderful song. And one of the lyrics that is, I want to ask you about is which is, so which is better? Uh, this, the lyric is when you're, when we were young, now we're old, who can tell me which is worse? So that's one, one of the, I, I don't want to say key lyrics, but it's certainly a central lyric of that song. Mm -hmm. And I assume that was intentional. So I'm going to ask you the question or to answer that question that you pose. We were young now, now we're old. Who can tell me which is worse? How do you feel about that as you look back? Well, I mean, Obviously, the preconception that anyone would have is that it's better to be young. You know, your, your life is ahead of you. Uh, you know, it's kind of an open road. But I think, you know, looking back on being young, if you, if you think about the quality of your life or the clarity of your life, or the consistency of your life, even. Um, 
it it can be difficult to sort of navigate because it, it's kind of it, we're all sort of going down the road uh, following our own maps to you know uh, sort of working things out for ourselves and quite honestly you know I think hurts and disappointments and those kind of challenges emotionally tend to come with being young. Um, so I think you get to a certain point where you hopefully acquire a certain level of wisdom and a certain level of peace, inner peace. Um, and again, that all depends on the choices you made, I guess. But um, I would certainly assert that, that it may be better being older because I think you can appreciate life and yes, you may have less time, but you know, your quality of life potentially is, is going to surpass and, and, and the, your understanding of all that you've been through there, there, there's, there's a way to make sense out of what everything that's happened, hopefully. And, and I think I'm in that place. So uh, I would argue that it might be better being older. And special resonance, I would imagine, after the health issues that you had. So as right. you, you know, so it's, um, I'm sure there's a sense of being grateful about that too, in this, you know, especially during these COVID times. But when, when I heard that lyric, it, it was also interesting to me because I know you had this collaboration with the Killers on the 2020 song Caution. And one of the Killers songs, of course, is When You Were Young. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's full circle on, on many of these things. But I think that's really interesting, Lindsay. So it's a beautiful song. The album's coming out soon. You're touring in September, beginning in September, but throughout September and then ongoing. Um, I know that you'll be in Los Angeles as an example in December, but how do you, after being all of us being in collective lockdown for such a long period of time and being unable to tour and, you know, as we sit here talking, the world is changing minute by minute, of course, in terms of things opening and closing, but how do you feel about touring? Is that something you really enjoy? Are you, are you excited by it? Are you, I'm a little nervous about being on stage again, or does that not even enter the equation? Well, it's funny. I've, I, I, on all the Fleetwood Mac tours we've ever done, I've always watched Stevie and the ritual she had to go through, or Mick, the ritual he had to go through for several hours before the show in order to stave off abject fear, you know? And that was never something that I dealt with. I guess it comes from the fact that I ultimately don't feel like I'm up there for the reason of seeking approval of any kind. <laughs> I, I'm hoping that the people that are there have the right ears and that this going to appreciate what I'm doing. And so in this particular case, I, I, I think that continues to hold true. I don't think that I uh, will be nervous about uh, re returning to the stage. It is a little surreal 
after quite a while. I mean, uh, I asked for a couple of extra weeks of rehearsal because, I, you know, I had to get my calluses back. Right. So there are some basic things there. And, and I didn't know if put to the test of, of running a set every day, once or twice a day, if if my vocal cords were indeed going to hold up or how my stamina was going to be really put to the test. But all of that has panned out very well. And, um, you know, but you're right. The the world is, is such now that although so many artists who waited around as long as they could uh, to, uh, obviously there was a long period of time where no one was touring so that that's kind of now you know flooded. Uh, people are really just dying to get out and tour, uh, and yet you know with with this this new Delta variant, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm part of me still thinks uh, two weeks from now someone can say, up, oh, you know, can't do it, and anything's possible. But I, I think uh, again, you you got to look at it in terms of just doing with what we got. And we've got a great set. I think I and, and to answer another part of your question, I, I love touring solo probably more than with Fleetwood Mac because there are no politics. You know, there's a camaraderie there with these guys that I've been working with for years and years, all the same people. It's like a family and we all care about the same things. These are all also people who have gone out on numerous Fleetwood Mac tours as well. So we know each other very well. We're friends. There, there again. There's no uh, discrepancy in in our, our our set of values or our our taste. You know, in some ways, that was what made Fleetwood Mac as good as it was, was we were people who didn't belong in a band together, you know, and, yeah. and it was a kind of a synergy that was uh, a sum, you know, greater than the sum of the parts. And so, uh, I don't know, I, I love the, uh, the, the camaraderie that we have on the road. I also love the fact that we're playing, you know, for 2000 people instead of 20. And uh, it, it just all supports, you know, uh, uh, a slightly higher musical ideal, I think. Well, listen, um, I know I personally am very excited to hear the new album and definitely see you on tour. Let's hope that things continue to strangely reopen and it's kind of yeah. stay that way in a safe manner, you know, in a safe yes. way. Yeah. But, but Lindsay, um, there are certainly many other things that we could touch upon. In fact, including the fact that you, as I understand it, play virtually or most of the instruments that are on your album all of them actually <laughs> all, all of them which is fascinating and there's a whole story behind that how as somebody who as you said don't read music but mm -hmm. you just it came to you naturally over time and it's because you're an artist you're a painter you're a painter exactly that's right which is wonderful so lindsay Thank you so much for being part of the Consequence Network story behind the song and taking us through through those two wonderful songs and the journeys behind them, but also the journey of your life, because it's a fascinating one. And it continues with exciting things that as an artist continues to evolve clearly. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. So there you have it, Lindsay Buckingham sharing incredible new insights into the stories behind Tusk and On the Wrong Side. 
For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe so you can be alerted when new episodes drop on the third Monday of every month. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our programming. And thanks again for listening to the story behind the song. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.